the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It reads like a laundry list that could have been created by the devil himself. Terrorist attacks. Mass shooting attacks on campuses. Political strife. Racism. Economic instability. Moral decline. Church attendance decline. Certainly true here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it has to make you pause and wonder as we take account of what's going on not only on the the stage um, morally, spiritually, politically across the globe, but certainly here at home, exactly what's going on. Where is the church? Where should we as Christians be in addressing all of this? Because we know ultimately the insights and the key to not only what's wrong, but what the solution is, is ultimately found in Scripture. A very special conference coming to the San Francisco Bay Area this weekend. We'll give you more details on that. But uh, meanwhile, I'd like to invite into our conversation tonight Pastor Andrew Chavaria. He is pastor at Elkhart Church of Christ, a U.S. Army veteran, co-founder of Liberty Cannon Media Group, the executive director of the Truth and Liberty Foundation, and speaks all across the country on the topic of uh, culture, God, government, and where our nation is today, where it's headed spiritually, and most importantly, where is the church we need to be? And Andrew, great to have you on the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, we appreciate the opportunity. Boy, you know, kind of uh, taking the temperature, so to speak, morally and spiritually of where America is at today, it, it would seem that not only are we in trouble, but many would wonder, where does the church stand in all of this? I mean, it wasn't all that long ago that the mainstream church in America seemed to be supercharged politically. That certainly was true in the 1980s. We were on the cutting edge of, of addressing many moral and spiritual issues, uh, both from the pulpit as well as uh, from a political standpoint. But it seems as if in, in recent years there's kind of been an atrophying of not only the church's um, influence in the governance of our nation, but, but even in terms of just our our overall influence in, in the day-to-day uh, life in America. Why is that? You know, I, I think it boils down to, to uh, the simple aspect of turnover. Uh, when you think about, and what I mean by that is we've lost some of the wise and old leadership that we had in the 80s, and we've now turned to individuals that grew up in the 60s and the 70s, those that grew up during the sexual revolution, and uh, those that grew up in a day and age where, uh, quite frankly, uh, the theory of evolution and all of these things during the space race kind of rude the day in the classroom. And um, quite simply, I think Abraham Lincoln put it best. He said the philosophy of the classroom in one generation will be the philosophy of the government in the next. And uh, we now see what happens when you remove God. I mean, when you start about 1965, uh, 1965, we start removing God from the classroom. We start, uh, we start uh, going, going progressively through the years. We remove the Bible from classrooms. We remove prayer from classrooms. Um, then we start getting into the 70s, and now abortion becomes the norm with Roe v. Wade. 
then you get into the 90s, homosexuality uh, gets on the platform, and uh, now you get into the 2000s, and it's, it's the law of the land. Well, how did all of this happen? Well, it happens because people that grew up already sensitizing themselves to this aspect of life kind of just just stay back and and you know like i said i mean abraham lincoln said it best this is now the philosophy of our government and we now live in a place and time where um i think and then this is just my personal philosophy it's one of the reasons that i travel the country talking about this stuff um i think that it's also weighed heavy on our pulpits our pulpits aren't the same anymore they're so watered down and uh preaching a, a you know they're, they're basically giving people a stick of cotton candy when they walk through the door and there's no truth being preached anymore so really in, in a large sense then this is sort of the product of erosion i mean the, the old saying that yeah. the drip becomes the trickle that turns into the stream that becomes the river and before you know it it's cut the grand canyon and in some respects while we can't point to any singular event that um, is at the center of this. It's many of the events. It, it, it's, uh, you know, kicking God out of the classroom. Uh, you know, dare we put up the Ten Commandments to encourage students to do things like, I don't know, not steal, not kill, not lie, obey their parents, things of that sort. And so all of a sudden, then, you have a combination of what's taking place not only at the institutional level, within public education, certainly within right. higher education, the body politic, then we add to that. I think you're right. Some some levels of frustration in the pulpit in America today that, and certainly this is not meant to be a, a blanket accusation, Pastor, no. but there are some pastors, I think, that would conclude that, you know, if I get up there and I start preaching sin, salvation, sanctification, start really talking about the tough, serious stuff that we see in Scripture, there'll be nobody there on Sunday morning. And, you know, we've got to pay an electric light bill, and I have a salary that has to be paid, and, you know, we need to put new carpeting in the church, so I'm going to have to go a little bit easier on all of this. And as a result, we end up watering down the effectiveness of the gospel to the point where it has no effect. Right. And, and to me, when when that happens, and, and I mean, it, it's textbook. You see churches like this popping up everywhere, um, you know, multi-million dollar buildings. They have the whole, you know, the whole band, the lights, the smoke, everything like that, uh, to draw people to come in and do those things. And the sermon is just so fluffy that you just really don't get anything out of it. But I, I think what that is a product of is that's a product of Christians who have lost their identity. You know, when we when we start, and here's what I mean by that. So many people think that you go to church. And here's the thing, and this is coming from a guy that stands up almost every single Sunday behind a pulpit somewhere. If not my home church, I'm somewhere preaching and teaching the gospel. So, so just, you know, <laughs> stick with me when I say it, because I'm kind of talking to myself. But you don't come to church. You go to worship God. The Bible actually teaches Christians that we are the church. We're the ones that are called out. And when we get that in our mind, when we start realizing that that is our identity, we are the church, and we stop going to church, and we start going to worship God, it doesn't matter what the pastor, the preacher, the evangelist, the reverend, the minister, I don't care what you call it, it doesn't matter what he says. If it's true, you're there to worship God, and you're going to accept it. So then the real distinction here is the difference between going to church and being the church. Yep. And that's why we are where we are today. And the, the catalyst that, that this has happened, the reason that this has happened, is because of the pulpit. Um, you know, Charles Finney is probably one of my favorite characters during the American Revolution. He was a, he was a cleric during the American Revolution. And he actually says, I mean, and I'm just going to kind of quote this pretty quick, but he says, Brethren, our preaching will bear its legitimate fruits. If immorality prevails in the land, the fault is ours 
in a great degree. Mm. Listen to what he says next, though. He says, if there's, if there's a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it. He says, if the press, if the public press lacks moral discrimination, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the church grows degenerate and worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it. He goes on and he says, if the world loses interest in religion, that's key right now. That's, you, you talked about in the introduction that so many people, even in the Bay Area, to a low attendance uh, in churches. If people lose interest in religion, he says the pulpit's responsible for it. But I want you to see what happens next, because this is what we're talking about, the climate of where we are as a nation right now. He says if Satan rules in the halls of legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. If our politics become so corrupt that the very foundation of our government is ready to fall away, the pulpit is responsible for it. Then he concludes, he says, let us not ignore this fact, my dear brethren, but let us lay to heart and be thoroughly awake to our responsibility in respect to the morals of this nation. The reason that Charles Finney could speak so boldly that way is because when we declared our independence, when we declared our independence, the king did not attribute George Washington. He did not attribute the Continental Army. He did not attribute the militia and the Minutemen. The, per, the, the people that they attributed American independence to, that our enemy attributed American independence to, was a group that he called the Black Robe Regiment. It was the pastors and the preachers of the day. He said it's because they're preaching truth and they're preaching liberty in Christ and they're preaching what we don't want them to preach. And that's where America spurned its freedom from. The pulpit was responsible for American freedom. Well, ironically enough, uh, you know, e- even a, a stranger to Orlando, a visitor, uh, de Tocqueville, made the exact same observation in terms of the impact and importance of what takes place at the pulpit. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, we have to recognize, and when we talk about things such as a moral code, that the Bible is the standard setter, but it is the church that is the standard bearer. And if we're not willing to bear the standard that Scripture sets for us and make that proclamation from the pulpit and live it out in the pews, uh, then I think the observations of, of, of Finney, as, as uncomfortable as they may be, are perhaps sadly bang on. We'll take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation. Our special guest in this segment of the program is Pastor Andrew Chavaria, as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. One of the issues here perhaps at hand is we're sort of um, doing some quarterbacking and analysis of what's happened in the, the moral and spiritual decline in America in the last generation, maybe going on two generations now. One of, I think, the issues uh, that is contributory to all of this uh, is the perception, real or otherwise, that there is a tremendous amount of disunity within the body of Christ. Now, let me hasten to add, some people say, well, you know, that's the problem with doctrine. Doctrine divides. Well, doctrine should divide. Uh, There is a reason why Christ even himself talked about separating the wheat from the chaff. So good, sound doctrine is critically important. That's not the kind of disunity I'm talking about. It's the sense of 
everybody kind of their own corner doing their own thing, um, not not giving much concern to a sense of, of cooperation with one mind, one heart, one spirit, uh, one goal of what Christ has called us to do, uh, to love our God, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, and of course to go about uh, the Great Commission and sharing the gospel in all the world. I think the effectiveness of that really is compromised when there is a tremendous sense of disunity about the body in many respects just because we're too busy doing our own thing or we feel uh, intimidated because somebody may be a little bit more successful in one arena or another than we are. And so, you know, rather than working together, we shy away from it because we feel uh, a bit intimidated. Uh, what about that perspective, uh, Pastor Chavarria? Is this issue of of a lack of unity contributory to this problem? You know, I, I think it is. I really think it is. I think the modern American church uh, today is so disjointed that that's why we can't find a foothold um, in making America what Ronald Reagan called that shining city on a hill. Um, you know, and we're, we're so disjointed to the part there is, you're right, sound doctrine is needed. I mean, you know, one of the ways that I break it down for, and this kind of makes it real for people, is the Bible took about approximately 1,600 years to write. It was 40 different authors, 300 years between the two Testaments where God didn't reveal himself to anyone. Then you have those 40 different guys that you have to talk about that didn't ever cross paths, but the central message is Jesus. And God took a lot of time to preserve all of that for us. And... uh when you think about it that way, you know, it's really easy to say, you know, God said what he meant, he meant what he said. And one of the things that God says in the Word, in the book of 1 Corinthians, is uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says, let there be no divisions among you. You know, the, the nom- I'm a part of a group, uh, it's called the Radicals, and uh, we all have different, quote-unquote, denominational backgrounds. Everybody has a different denominational background. Uh, but we all agreed, and everybody's a Christian leader or a pastor or a preacher somewhere, but we started this group together. We meet every Tuesday night uh, on, a, on a video platform, and we all started meeting together, and, and among us there's millions of people that follow us on social media and, and, uh, and come to our churches and hear us preach. We all agreed that it was time in America to break down the walls of denominationalism and to start being Christians. That's it. The Bible doesn't, you know, it's funny, the Bible doesn't mention the word, and I know this might step on some people's toes, but if you want to hear and understand more about what I'm going to say, we'll talk about the event that I'm talking about later. But the Bible never says Catholic. The Bible never says Pentecostal. The Bible never says Baptist. The Bible never says Methodist. The Bible calls those that follow after Jesus Christians. And when we start following Jesus, and we start deciding to be Christians, Man, that's unity. That's oneness. We have the doctrine. The doctrine is the Word of God. That's the Bible. We have that. And if we can stick to that and we just call ourselves Christians, we will turn, not not the nation, we'll turn the world upside down. Of course, one of the other challenges I think that's contributory that goes hand in hand with that, and not only that sense of, of competition as opposed to cooperation, but also the fact that sometimes there's so much of an emphasis on on doing as opposed to being, and I think that goes to the heart of another big issue, and that is just a, a lack of really understanding what true discipleship <laughs> really 
looks like. People think I show up to church on Sunday morning, drop a couple of bucks in the offering plate. Uh, you know, whenever there's a bake sale, I always be sure to contribute, and they think that therefore qualifies them uh, as a quote-unquote Christian. But they've never been right. through a discipleship process. They don't know how to pray. They don't know how to read the Word. They've never shared their faith with another person. Right. Right. We just basically convert people, and then we throw them to the wolves and expect them to be mature Christians, and it's just never going to work. Yeah, and when it doesn't work out, then we wonder why. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it never, it's never worked out that way. And that's what we do, honestly, and that's what we're doing to our young people today. And if you look, um, we're losing probably about 70%, 60 to 70% of our youth groups leave the church and don't come back by the time they hit college age. We're losing them to sec- we're losing them to secular progressivism. Mm. And uh and, and that that's a big that's a staggering number. Sixty to seventy percent. In the churches of Christ it's higher than that. It's seventy five to eighty percent. Um but I you know, like I said, I preach for I'll, I'll preach at any church they want me to come and speak at. Uh but but here's the thing. Here's the thing with that and it, it's it's very simple. It's very simple, because I, I mentioned the word identity. I'm a, I'm a big talker when it comes to identity. And um, one of the things that people like to pawn off now, and you've probably heard it said, um, people probably said it, I know I've said it, we tell people all the time, hey, I'm, just, I'm, I'm a sinner just like you. And, and that's true to a degree, but I'm not a sinner anymore. I'm saved. And, and the reason that we tell people I'm a sinner just like you is because of the next phrase that we say after that. We tell people, cause, you know, look, man, all you have to do is follow Jesus. That's it. All you have to do is follow Jesus. But Paul, you know, going back to the book of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul says, follow me or imitate me as I imitate Christ. You see, we, and Jesus in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and Mark 16, he tells us to go and make disciples. You know, so we have a responsibility as Christians to be an example and to disciple, teach them in the ways in which to follow after Jesus. And we don't want to do that anymore. So we just tell people, hey, I'm a sinner just like you. All you have to do is follow Jesus, because that takes the whole don't don't follow me. Don't. But here's the thing. Me as a Christian, as a church leader. I want people to follow me. I want people behind me because that means that there's somebody behind me to catch me when I fall. That means that there's somebody behind me to lift me up when I'm down. You know, so it's okay to teach somebody. And, and we don't want to be vulnerable, but you have to be vulnerable when it comes to following Jesus because it's an ultimate act of submission. Well, moreover, that whole notion of iron sharpening iron, that seems yeah. to be a component that's sort of missing. And I think that's also been uh, part of the, the, the fallout of the so-called megachurch movement, and that is that it becomes so impersonal, so disconnected, that there's not that, that human touch, that intimacy, that iron sharpening iron that yeah. Scripture talks of that is ne- necessary to take place for, I think, true discipleship to form. Yeah. Now, that said, let's talk about um, this um, spiritual renewal weekend. Give us details, if you would, Andrew. Yeah, normally when I, I go and speak somewhere, it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and uh, one of the things that I, that I want to do over the, over three days, I'm going to be I'm going to do six lessons in three days um, on being one. So it doesn't matter what your faith background is. You don't have to be a member of the Church of Christ to come to this event. If you if you have if you're going to a community church, if you're going to it doesn't matter what kind of church you're going to. We want you to come to this event because here's the thing is um, and here's what I'm going to be focusing on in Ephesians chapter two, beginning at verse twelve. 
the, the, the writer says the word, he uses the first word, the word is remember. So this is something for all of us that we all have to remember that you one time were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. We've all been there. We've all not had this hope. Well, you know what God did give us? God did give us hope. In verse 19 of that same chapter, he says, So then now you're no longer strangers and aliens, but now you're a fellow citizen with the saints and are in God's household. If you and I, and it doesn't matter where we came from, it doesn't matter who we are, it doesn't matter how much money we make, what we wear, how much clothes, you know, what we drive, none of that's going to matter. If you are willing to follow Jesus and make Jesus your identity, you're not going to be a stranger anymore. And you're going to be a citizen of God's household. And what we want to talk about over these three days is renew our spirits to be one household. This sense of, of, the, the, the sense of cooperation, this sense of working together, the this, this sense of building each other up, because only when we start to do that will we start building our nation back up. Andrew, if folks want to get more information about this, uh, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, AndrewShavaria.com. It's, uh, it's a long last name. I know C-H-A-V-A-R-R-I-L-L-A. Andrew, before that, AndrewShavaria.com. Um, or find me on Twitter. There's a link straight to my, my website on Twitter. It's at Church Patriot. It's really easy. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll be able to find my Facebook, my website, and all the times and the dates and everything are listed there. And, of course, you know, even if you just Google it, you know, uh, <laughs> bowing to the difficulty of your last name, I yeah. found if you just Google Andrew and just get into Shava, R-I-L, yeah. you'll, you'll, you'll find him that way, too. Or, again, the yeah. Twitter at, at Church Patriot. Well, Andrew, we appreciate the time and the insights and encourage listeners, hey, this is a good way to get a deeper understanding about what Christ wants for the church when he prayed that we would all be one what does not only that that look like but what does it mean in terms of being able to increase the effectiveness and the impact of the church on the world around us as i said earlier while the bible is the standard setter the church is the standard bearer our thanks to pastor andrew chavaria for being with us tonight on this segment of lifeline and now back to lifeline with craig roberts An interesting new book out that examines America's enemies and our use of love for the underdog that ultimately trashes America and American power is penned by Michael Prell. Michael is a columnist with the Washington Times. You can also read his musings at townhall.com. He served as crisis manager for the 2003 Northeastern Blackout and a strategist for the Tea Party Patriots and has authored now a new book called Underdogma, How America's Enemies Use Our Love for the Underdog to trash American power. And, uh, Michael, good to have you on the program tonight. Thank you for having me here, Craig. I appreciate it. Uh, first, define, if you would, for us the title here. We know what the underdog is. In fact, American, I think largely Americans, have always enjoyed rooting for the underdog. Uh, but when you speak of underdogma in your book title, what do you mean by that? Well, you're right. America was founded on an underdog uprising against a more powerful adversary, the British. But underdogma is far different. Underdogma is the widespread and corrosive belief that in any given issue, whichever side has less power, the underdog, is automatically considered righteous simply because they have less power. And whichever side has more power, like America, is automatically considered wrong simply because they have more power. And it doesn't matter 
which side is actually right or wrong. All that matters to those who practice under dogma is which side has less or more power. And in my book, I show how this under dogma shapes many of the issues that shape our world today. And I answer the question, I ask the question, you know, why is it that some Americans embrace American power and American exceptionalism while others feel the need to bow down and apologize for it? And then finally, I give readers the tools to fully embrace the idea of American exceptionalism unapologetically and to beat back and defeat this corrosive belief system that I've called under dogma. Let's spend some time analyzing this. You mentioned about the very roots of America that is the triumph of the the underdog over the overdog, in this case, uh, the the oppressive kingdom of uh, England uh, against the, the colonialists here in America. Um, this, of course, is something that I think has kind of set the stage for an interesting, uh, interesting dichotomy here in that as we move through then the subsequent growth and expansion of the United States in through the Industrial Revolution and modernization, and then eventually, of course, the outcome of the Second World War, uh, America uniquely has always been on the, on the side of being ourselves the overdog, and yet we've always tended to have kind of this soft spot in our hearts for the underdog. Well, because America was founded on that underdog uprising, it's part of the national character. But here's where underdogma is different. Underdogma says that the first Americans were good because they were relatively powerless. But as soon as America became big and successful and powerful, America became bad. So power, power equals bad and weakness equals good. Yeah, I describe it as an axis of power between the power-haves and the power-have-nots. The little guy can do no wrong, even when he does wrong. And the big guy can do no right, even when he does right. And this is where it separates our traditional notions of right and wrong and wipes all that out and says, no, it only tilts on whichever side has less power or more power. Right and wrong objectively don't matter. And this is where moral moral relativism comes from. Boy, not only that, but the sense of entitlement, uh, what we're seeing going on with uh, this 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 sort of the uh, the Robin Hood, you know, shift to taking from the rich and giving to the poor that we're seeing uh, just, you know, blatant throughout government today. Um, this is really a dynamic that goes beyond, you know, simple power struggles between the United States and other nations. We're even seeing this dynamic at play within American society and certainly with the American politic. So much of the mentality that has crept into the American psyche on this topic is impacting our lives in so many levels. I mean, we've seen going back to Johnson's Great Society, the notion of entitlement creeping in, even the idea that if someone has... has come up by their own bootstraps, so to speak, and they've worked hard, they've gotten an education, they've sacrificed, they've put in long hours, their family has sacrificed. Now, as a result of the fruit of their labor and blessings, they have been successful at life, they've been able to enjoy a modicum of success and some wealth. All of a sudden, somebody comes in and now is of the entitlement mentality that because you have and I have not, what you have, you must give to me. Not only have we seen that dynamic play at play here, I think, in underdogma, there's also the notion that we tend to suddenly, as uh, author Michael Perel points out, blame the overdog and immediately cast doubt on on he or she or it, um, even in the face of reality that would demonstrate that it's actually the underdog that's the evil one here. You spend some time in the book on this point, 
Michael, and I think one of the easiest things that we can demonstrate with this notion is a lot of what we've seen in, in particularly in mainstream, so-called mainstream and liberal media post 9-11. Uh, th- this notion that somehow, well, what's taken place here is, you know, people that are victims of Americans' foreign policy and abuse and America standing up for totalitarian regimes like the Shah yep. of Iran for so many years and, and even supporting Saddam Hussein, at least during the time that he was at war with with our enemy Iran, to the point where what happened to uh, over 3,000 people on 9-11 was not the fault of the terrorists. It was really the fault of America. And it sounds crazy until you read their own words. And let me just reset the frame for people. This belief under dogma is a reflexive belief that the little guy is good, not because he's good, but simply because he has less power. And the big guy is bad because he has more power. So in the attacks of 9-11, there's a whole chapter I dedicate to this, and it's just shocking what happened, because when that happened, the whole underdogma equation was turned upside down. America was the underdog, and we clearly saw America's enemies were the enemies. There was absolute moral clarity for about six hours. And then it started to shift, and you saw this underdogma happening. And I take readers through step by step by step. So there's two parts of underdogma. Number one is the big guy must be the bad guy. Did we see that happen after 9-11? Oh, yeah. First, America was clearly the victim. And then we saw it creeping and creeping and creeping to maybe America brought it on itself. Maybe it was America's foreign policy. Maybe it was this, maybe it was that, until it got to the point where high-profile Americans were blaming America for causing this to begin with. And the other side of underdogma is to deify the underdog, no matter what he does. Just because he has less power, he must be good. And if you think it's crazy that they tried it with the terrorists, they did. They went step by step by step. I have direct quotes from mainstream American media calling Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who planned the attacks, quote, thoughtful about his cause and craft, and quote, folksy. And I have five major American media personalities who referred to the 9-11 terrorists as courageous because they had the courage to fly plane loads of innocent people into buildings filled with other innocent people. That shows you the power of under dogma to completely sidestep the rational mind and get people to do these and say these horrible, horrible things. Well, to be sure, I mean, to suggest at any level that Khalid, uh, Sheikh Khalid Mohammed, the, the mastermind behind the 9-11 attacks is folksy, is like suggesting that, I don't know, uh, Joseph Stalin was just kind of a teddy bear. Yeah, you know, it just misunderstood. Water a whole population. It's just bizarre. You know, where, do, where does this stem from? Because I'm old enough to remember a time in this country, Michael, when it wasn't always like this. I mean, post uh, another major event on U.S. soil, and that was the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7th of 41, uh, Americans didn't uh, suddenly rush to say that, well, you know, it must have been that thing about, about America cutting off Japan's steel supply so they couldn't continue expansion into China and into Korea and the other neighboring countries there in the east that must have been the thing it's really our fault you didn't hear that what's changed no, there was a there was a tipping point and i peg the beginning of under dogma to the berkeley student protests of the mid-1960s now why did it happen then and this was when so just to again reset the frame this is not people 
being against bad people for doing bad things. This is people being against those who have power, even if they're virtuous. What they're doing is they're fighting the power. And in Berkeley in the 1960s, that's when the, quote, fight the power movement began. And the reason why it began at that time, and I go into a whole chapter on this, is because that was the first generation that came of age in a country that was a superpower, where they didn't have to fight for sustenance and fight to get by like their parents did. They were born literally at the top of the power heap in the world. And ever since 1989, all Americans have been the only ones at the top of the power heap. So this was the first generation, and when they came of age in the 60s, they were given all this power, and suddenly they were looking around, and they started to feel queasy about it, maybe apologetic about it. And that kind of thing is a luxury only afforded people who live in relative power and safety. People around the world don't bow down and apologize for power. They want to take it from you. You know, that's the reason why I wrote this book. I mean, while some Americans take exception to American exceptionalism and American power, America's enemies have a far, far different view of power in their own words. Let's take Osama bin Laden at his word. He said their view of power is this. When people see the strong horse and the weak horse, by nature they will like the strong horse. That's precisely the opposite of underdogma. And, you know, one of my favorite writers is Mark Stein, and he writes about America's demographic disadvantage to its enemies. They're having more kids, we're having less. In Under Dogma, I show how those who practice Under Dogma are putting America at a philosophical disadvantage to its enemies by championing the weak horse and demonizing the strong horse. The consequences of that over time are dire for America. Well, to be sure, particularly since we're no longer using as the yardstick um, things as righteousness and morality and goodness and fairness and fair play, uh, the kind of um, the kind of measuring sticks, the yardsticks that we were taught were measurements of, of virtue and wholesomeness when we were kids. At least I certainly was. Now all of a sudden, uh, we uh, we move to the notion that it's simply based on this one size. Yeah, it almost um, almost then in the end favors the bully, doesn't it? What it does is it shows, it, it shows you the power of this belief system to literally throw out our notions of right and wrong. I mean, we've all heard of moral relativism, but it's not, it's not an accurate term because it's only relative in one direction. You don't see moral relativists automatically, instinctively, taking the side of the powerful. <laughs> it's always on the side of the little guy. They're always excusing the actions and behaviors of the little guy, saying, oh, it's because of this and because of that. No, I mean, some things are just plain wrong. Well, look, for example, uh, one of the things that, is, that has always frustrated me, and we've seen this rear its ugly head once again um, in the wake of the recent uh, recession, and that is the idea that we see people that, as uh, well, you know, so-and-so got caught stealing today, and it's because of the high unemployment in the region and because there's a lack of parity in, in employment opportunities, and so as a result, people steal. Yeah. And I've I- argued, well, let's go back to the last time that America 
America really suffered economically, and that was not the Great Recession, but the Great Depression, where we had 25% of the of the working public unemployed, uh, where we had no social network available, there were no uh, safety nets in place, Social Security, unemployment, none of that existed. And yet, very few incidences outside of the outlandish stuff like organized crime that would lead to things like, you know, the, the Ma Barker and uh, John Dillinger, you didn't see average Americans going out to steal just to feed their families. No, they went out, they sold apples and pencils on the street corner, they bartered and traded, they did what they needed to, but we didn't see America become a wholesale group of thieves. And so I would argue that when we look at thievery, it's not indicative of somebody who's who's stealing because they're hungry and trying to feed their family. It's indicative of somebody that is living in sin, that's a criminal, and as a result is behaving in a criminal fashion. Absolutely. And those people who, who dismiss it and say, well, they're just stealing because they're poor, they're profoundly insulting all the poor people in the world who don't steal. You know, I grew up poor. I'm pretty sure some people in the listening audience right now did, too. And the daily decision you make to be a good person, those who practice under dogma throw all that out the window and say, no, 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 if you're the little guy, you can do whatever you want, and you're good. The little guy can do no wrong even when he does wrong. That's under dogma. Now, this, we're t- what we're talking about here is, you know, power haves and power have-nots and rich and poor. It's power imbalances. And one way to deal with power imbalances is to, you know, get angry or spiteful or or turn against those who have achieved success and power and just champion the underdog, the little guy. And what you're doing is you're celebrating his weakness. That's one way to do this, deal with power imbalances. That's under dogma. Michael Perel, my guest, the book Under Dogma, How America's Enemies Use Our Love for the Underdog to Trash American Power. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Michael Perel, my guest today. You know his writings from townhall.com as well as the Washington Times. He's got a new book out called Under Dogma, How America's Enemies Use Our Love for the Underdog to Trash American Power. Help me understand sometimes perhaps the the dynamic here. You know, when when we are the overdog and yet we demonstrate um, a, a propensity toward favoring the underdog, clearly those stakes are at odds. I wonder if some of this goes back to a sense of of misplaced or confused guilt. I mean, sometimes we see Americans, even when we're the ones who clearly, even to the casual observer, Michael, have been injured, yet we take on a position supporting the underdog almost in a fashion of self-hatred. Why? I'm guilty occasionally of being a member of the reality-based community. So I'm going to stay factual. And there are people out there who feel this guilt. Okay, so I say to them, look, America is the number one power in the world. By definition, there must be one power in the world that is number one. So if you're so guilty and you feel so bad about it being America, fine. What are the alternatives? What are the alternatives? I mean, I look at the entire arc of history, and I see clearly, and I'm sure you do too, that this American moment is a miracle of history. It's something to be treasured. We've all heard that phrase, freedom is not free. I would add to that, I would say American exceptionalism is not free. It's something that needs to be earned and fought for every day, and we've seen that so clearly over the past two years. I would say that it's not inherited so much as it's fought for and won every day by Americans, and I say 
they've earned it. And maybe that's the point that's, that's un- misunderstood. I think, for example, I started my day today by reading a op-ed piece arguing that we just ought to dispense with all of this. And the writer went on to talk about how the Star-Spangled Banner has so many references to war and, and you know, why should we be talking about war when we're going to enjoy a, a pastime? Of course, ironically, they're talking about this ahead of football, one of the most violent pastimes that we Americans enjoy. And yet I thought to myself as I read this article, how absolutely completely disconnected with history is this writer who doesn't understand that he's exercising his First Amendment rights to argue changing the lyrics or dispensing with altogether uh, the national anthem because he's offended by the war overtones, and yet it is the war overtones to which the national anthem refers that shed blood, that bought the very freedom that he enjoys to make such an opinion known publicly in the first place. What irony. And you see the power of this belief system, this underdogma. Do you think for a second that in any of our enemies' countries, there's currently people sitting themselves saying, you know what, um, we probably shouldn't sing that song that has stuff about it, you know, about killing people in it because it might offend uh, someone's sense of it. just doesn't happen. And that's what happens when you have this queasiness about power. And it comes from this natural reaction. It's, it's a gut reaction. It's non-thinking. It bypasses the rational mind. It makes you automatically think that the powerful must be bad and the little guy must be good. And why would you think that? Well, you think that because every time you turn on a television show, a movie, the evening news, or even from the President of the United States, you hear over and over and over that when you achieve wealth and success and powerful, you're bad, you're a fat cat, you need to be demonized. And when you hear this for your whole life and you mix that in with that, that shared human experience that we all have of being a small and powerless baby as children, it just all comes together into this love-hate relationship with power that a lot of people who practice under dogma have actually learned how to manipulate inside of you and actually show you how that's done. It's quite disturbing, and it goes right to the whole government takeovers. I know we're running out of time, but if you want to know how the government did all those takeovers, let's go through the takeovers. Big health insurance, big banks, big lenders, big insurance, big student lenders, big Wall Street fat cats. What do they have in common? They're all big fat cats. They're all big powers. And the government knows how you react to that. They just put the word big in there. They claim they're going to stand up for you, the little guy, and they use it to take your power away. This is a deep-seated belief system, and I want you to be able to see it clearly so you can rip it out of yourself because they're, they're using it to manipulate you right now. Well, I watched in a news story that I shared with my audience before you joined me tonight uh, concerning the push toward removing the opportunity for, quite frankly, the U.S. taxpayer to pay for abortions through the new health insurance law. And one of the Congress people arguing against it immediately makes the argument that, well, we thought Republicans were in favor of making government smaller. Obviously, this is an attempt for big government because they want to put government back in the bedroom once again. And, of course, it, it's it's the very care selection of certain words that they know is going to um, elicit a certain response. Yeah. Even though what may be communicated makes a- everything communicated there before and afterwards makes no sense whatsoever. If we pick on certain buzzwords, there it is. Even to going back to the, the example you share in the book, and we talked about this even related to sports a moment ago, the universal dislike that some have for the New York Yankees. And if you drill down as to why do you hate the Yankees so much... I think the honest person would simply answer, that's because they win so much. And they typically always beat my team. Therefore, I'm in favor of any team that's fighting or, or, or going up against the Yankees. I'm so happy you brought this up because I would love that we close with this. Because 
how do you satisfy those who practice under dogma, right? The only way to satisfy them is to stop being powerful. America's tried everything else. Foreign aid, liberated Europe, fund the United Nations, the most charitable nation in world history. Every time there's a disaster anywhere in the world, American helicopters are there on site saving people's lives. And by the way, you don't have helicopters if you don't have power. And the only way to satisfy under dogmatists is to stop being number one, just like Yankees with Yankee derangement syndrome. The only way to satisfy the Yankee haters is for the Yankees to lose. And I don't want America to lose. And that's what I show people in this book. You can actually embrace American power and exceptionalism because you've earned it. Good point and an excellent one to end on. Uh, It's a compelling book, Michael. We appreciate taking some time out of your schedule to share your insights and the hard work that went into this. Uh, By the way, of course, um, I mentioned that uh, Michael is also a columnist for uh, townhall.com, which is a a sister property of uh, this Salem radio station. Point you in that direction to read his insights and musings. The book, again, called Under Dogma, How America's Enemies Use Our Love for the Underdog to Trash American Power. And the book available through Amazon.com and also information on the web at under-dogma.com that's under-dogma.com and our thanks again to Michael Perrell for being with us on this edition of Lifeline well that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline thanks so much for being with us and if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast simply log on to kfax.com that's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast our producer is Wanda Sanchez I'm Craig Roberts till next time round remember just don't keep the faith get out there and share it and make it a great evening so long Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.